I'm Aaron Treadwell, and I'm, we are, excuse me, we are in our home in Harlem. And I'm sitting across from my wife, Janet Mock. Honey, forgot to name what they're listening to. And you're listening to Never Before, a podcast hosted by my wife, Janet Mock. So good. I like that intro. Welcome to Never Before, a conversation series where I ask some of my faves some searing, super serious, super fun, super silly questions that will hopefully allow you to see them like you've never seen them before. But before I get all up in their business, I should probably tell you just a little bit about myself. I was born and raised in Hawaii on the island of Oahu. I'm the middle of five kids, the first in my family to go to college, and I began my career in media as an editor at People.com. I wrote two memoirs about growing up and coming of age as a trans girl, and I strive to to tell stories and to create mirrors that allow the kid that I once was to really just see herself. And now I'm a podcast host. It's kind of cool, right? Combining my love of conversation and culture, famous folk and feminism in Never Before. On this podcast, I'm sharing space and thoughts with the biggest pop figures and pushing them beyond their precious and practice sound bites to share with me and you all the things they've never shared, revealed, or said before. We'll talk about how they got to where they are now. We'll talk about the moves and mishaps that shaped them. And we'll laugh and nod and cry and cackle and sigh and do all of the things together. I hope you will join me as we get into the nuance, into the grays, and go places we've been never before. So let's get right into it. The first episode of Never Before. We're in the living room of my first guest, castle-like home, tucked into the Hollywood Hills. I want a black art tour of... Okay. Miss Knowles' house. Well, where you want to start? I'm standing next to Miss Tina Knowles Lawson. She's searching the walls of her mansion. They're covered in dozens of Black contemporary art pieces. She's looking for a place to start. Well, I have to talk about my favorite um, artist right now. My favorite contemporary artist is Robert Pruitt. His piece is in there, and it's one up the stairs. And he mixes contemporary um, culture with traditional African culture. Mm. I don't know anything about art. I didn't grow up in a home with art or with parents who took us to museums. And I'm trying to maintain my cool, though, as Miss Tina guides me through her home gallery. In case you've been living under a rock, Miss Tina is the woman who carried, birthed, and raised superstars, Solange and Beyonce Knowles. These pieces are interesting. And you can see two are missing off the wall because um, me and Beyonce bought them together. So it's five pieces, it's three right here. I lent her two of them. She gave them to me. I let her borrow them and she didn't want to give them back. <laughs> and she said, didn't I buy two of those? And I was like, yeah, you did, but you gave them to me. So anyway. <laughs> what I love so much about Miss Tina is that she's warm in a way that reminds me of like my favorite auntie. With a simple smile or the crack of a joke, she can turn your entire day around. This quality has drawn more than a million people to Miss Tina's Instagram. She's so open and unguarded, so sincere and silly, so loving and regular. His name is Esau. Oh God, why why is my, see when you ask me, put me on the spot, it's Tanner 
but um, yes, Henry Ottawa Tanner. <laughs> See, that's what happens when you get 63. I'm telling you, my brain gets foggy. This piece here, I got in Africa. Isn't that beautiful? It's one of my favorite it is. pieces. But the features are so haunting, it's really beautiful. And that's a young 21-year-old up-and-coming artist in Africa. Cupido, Cupido is the last name. Wow. Yeah. I said wow probably like a hundred times because this is surreal. I am talking to the source, the queen mother, the goddamn blueprint. Miss Tina is my first guest on Never Before, and we're at her dining room table, overlooking the sparkling skyline of Los Angeles. Miss Tina was born Celestine Ann Beyonce. She was the youngest of seven in Galveston, Texas, very shy, creative, and itching to break out on her own. She married Matthew Knowles in 1980 and had two daughters, Beyonce in 1981 and Solange in 1986. She supported her family by running a hair salon in Houston, Texas. The salon was called Headliners, and soon she was making headlines of her own as a creative force behind her daughter's girl group, Destiny's Child. But wait, let's go back to young Miss Tina. That's where our conversation begins. At 19 years old, you left home in Galveston and you went to go work for Shiseido Cosmetics in California. Yes. What was that experience like, leaving the nest as the youngest of seven? Well, it was actually pretty liberating because my parents were 44 when they had me, so they were really protective mm -hmm. and, you know, just tried to hang around all the time. So that was my first time getting away and just feeling really free. So, you know, it was great for me. And what was L.A. like in the late 70s? Everybody had business cards, which I wasn't used to because I was from Texas. So I thought everybody with a business card was legitimate, mm -hmm. which is really funny when you think about it. But it was, um, you know, Black Hollywood ablaze. And, and the uh, first store that I worked at was in the Crenshaw Mall. Oh, I love it. We were right at the foot of... Baldwin Hills. I don't mm -hmm. know if you're familiar with that area, but it was like the Black Beverly Hills. And two weeks after I started doing makeup there, Tina Turner came in. Oh my God. And I'm, I, I lost it because, you know, I was a fan and she was so beautiful. And they were like, oh, she lives right up the hill. And so all the stars would come down to that particular mall because they lived in Baldwin Hills. And uh, so it was exciting. It was really fun for me. What was that Tina Turner meeting experience like for you? I mean, you can imagine being from Galveston, Texas and seeing Tina Turner. I was like, oh, my God, I am the land of the stars. <laughs> and so, also like, I've made it. <laughs> yeah, I really made it. You know, I was telling everybody, they were like, yeah, right. You know, nobody believes you. And you also said that you had gotten a lot of tips and stuff from drag performers. Oh, yeah. My nephew, Johnny, was my best friend growing up. And uh, he did all the clothes for the drag queens. And I used to do the makeup and, you know, just like a little assistant or whatever. And uh, that was a great experience for me because I learned about taping up your boobs and, mm. you know, taping in your waist. And so those were things that um, are pulling your, your girdle at the time. They didn't have spanks, mm. but you took your girdle and you actually sewed it onto the bra. So it wasn't that line or the rolling down. It was seamless. And, yeah, it was seamless. And that was really a great tip. And I used that with Destiny's Child. I used it, uh, you know, later on Spanx came about. But I learned so many great tips from those guys. People kind of frame the South sometimes as like super conservative and all this kind of stuff. But there was like this point of like, 
gender performance, like with drag queens. Sure. That was it's interesting because my nephew was my best friend. And I remember when I went to Ball High, which was the integrated school, there were some white guys there. And I said to them, where do y'all go to meet people you know, like you and mm-hmm. your friends. And, and they told me about this club called the Contiki. So I'm like 16 years old and I put all this makeup on and me and my nephew go to the Contiki. And that's where he met his friends mm-hmm. because before that time he was just kind of lonely. Mm-hmm. And I was his friend, but as I started getting a boyfriend, I'm like, I gotta find some friends for him. Cause you know, we hung out every day. My mom used to say this thing, that's so gross, but she say, you know, when Johnny farts, you got to be there to catch it. <laughs> so we were inseparable. <laughs> and then when I started getting a boyfriend, I was like, I felt kind of bad about not being able to spend as much time. So he just, you know, met people like him and it was really cool. And this club was kind of underground mm-hmm. at the time. I love that story because it's like this sense of, you know. For for a lot of like young people, the sense of isolation. As you talk about Johnny, absolutely, but then you helped you helped Johnny find like a little passageway to his people, exactly. Which, which then also helped you gain all these different kind of tips and exposure, right. Around you know makeup and hair and beauty, and you also spent some time. You had a little girl group of your own, didn't yes. you? Yes, the Veil Tones. We started in junior high. I mean, that was the time of Motown, so everybody had a singing group, you know? And um, our little group was special because my mom and me made all the costumes. So people looked at us as much for our costumes and our hairdos and our Mitch Mac boots and, you know, as they did for the singing. But it was really fun and it was my thing. Like, I didn't belong to any other organizations or... You weren't uh, a cheerleader. No, or... I wasn't the popular kid. So that was my outlet. But isn't that the way it always is? Like the pop, the unpopular kids are the ones that end up, they're kind of like watching from the outside or have I a different so. perspective and you come in and you end up slaying later on in, in life. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, that was my outlet is the singing and the practicing and the whole thing. And, you know, it came full circle because who would have known that I was able to use those things for Destiny's Child later? You know, and they they became that group that everybody was waiting to see what they wore. Wasn't good all the time, but it was different and unique. My own childhood is so closely linked to um, the emergence of Destiny's Child. I was 15 years old when I saw them for the first time on TRL with Bills, Bills, Bills. For me, it was like the first time that I really felt seen and heard as like a young black girl growing up in Hawaii where there weren't other black girls. And so when I saw, you know, Beyonce, Kelly, Latavia and Latoya, Latoya. I was completely sold. I was like, this is my everything. And everything that they wore (laughs) from the cowboy hats with the midriff and the fringe and the braids and the everything (laughs) I copied, like any, I was waiting with bated breath for those looks. And at the time, I didn't know that you were so instrumental to helping create those them. I was designing them and a lot of the times making them too, because we had really small budgets. And uh, there was a guy in Houston, his name is Jaime, and he was a great, you know, he could, he's one of the best seamstresses and designers. And so I would get with him and I'd do my little terrible sketches and he'd make them come to life. And I would actually help him sew them because, you know, just for economical reasons. But 
yeah, we were creating everything that they were doing because, you know, the first time they wanted to put the girls all the time, the first maybe six months, they had a stylist and they put them in black every time. And I'm like, because it was cheaper to find four black mm -hmm. outfits. But I'm like, they're 14, 15 years old, 15, 16 by that time. And they don't need to be in black. So I just go buy some fabric and put some things together. And, um, and you know, it caught on. How did you have time to do that? You were also the sole... I was a hairstylist. Yeah. I was the luggage <laughs> carrier. and uh, <laughs> Yeah. I think a lot of people don't understand the, um, the levels to how Girls' Time, which became Destiny's Child, mm -hmm. how that journey was a long journey. Oh, it didn't yeah. just start from no, 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 oh, right? No. Like it was something where it was, you know, your ex-husband quit his job to help manage them full time. Right. Everyone was surviving. Your family were surviving off mm -hmm. of the work that you made with your salon headliners. Yeah. So what was that? That and my husband worked at Xerox and then he left and, you know, it became pretty tough during that time but be for years they started when they were 10 9 and 10 mm -hmm. and so the early years you know we supported a lot of the efforts of the group and all the parents pitched in but we were a little better off financially so it kind of fell on us mm -hmm. but um everything took place the rehearsals the you know at our house and I was always making costumes or buying them from the flea market and changing them up and, you know, that kind of thing. And as they got their deal, they had stylists for the first six months. But like I said, they were always in black. A lot of times the clothes didn't make it. So I would have to go out and go to the mall and get something and try to change it up. Do you remember uh, the first time that that misconnection happened where their clothes didn't show up and you had to go and rush out? Yeah, the first big time, because it had happened before, but we were in Jamaica for, and actually it was MTV. They had a summer break, spring break thing, and uh, the clothes didn't come. And so I, I, we had gone by this little roadside flea market and I saw these camouflage things. And at the time, Master P, who's from Houston mm -hmm. as well, did all this camouflage, but it was guys. So I went back and got the clothes and uh, we found a sewing machine and whipped up some outfits and they wore them on their camouflage. I, I actually borrowed um, Wycliffe John's pants off of his body and put them on Kelly. They were drawstring <laughs> green khakis. And uh, he came up and he was like, yo, who, who styled y'all? And the girl said, Beyonce said, my mom did. And he said, well, you need to do it all the time. So that's kind of how it happened because I was doing the hair then. So then I, I was doing the hair and doing the clothes. And um, it's funny because, you know, in the early days, uh, one of the other parents, Latavia's mom, Cheryl, and I traveled with them all the time. And she was the chaperone and I was the whatever else. <laughs> and uh, we used to pack the girls clothes and carry them into the hotels because we would be at like the Holiday Inn or something like that. And we'd get there late, and they wouldn't have anybody to carry luggage. And we, we were like, oh, no, girls, you can't carry your luggage because y'all are stars. <laughs> Not really. But <laughs> but we carried the luggage in. So it was steam it, iron it, do the hair. She'd do the makeup. Sometimes I'd do it. And, um, you know, it was, it was really fun. It was a lot of work. But that's what you do when you're starting off, and you want them to have all these things. Mm -hmm. I love the the sense of wanting them to fully embody their stardom. Right. You know, like, you don't carry your luggage. Mama right. will do that right. for you. Well, we did it. And then later on, when people started kind of fawning over them and acting like they couldn't pick up anything, we were like, oh, they can, they can pick that up. They can carry it. Because we didn't want them to be 
you know, so, so spoiled. And they would always say, well, you told us that we didn't have to carry our luggage and now we got somebody to carry it and you want us to carry it. But you want to keep them grounded and not to become these big divas, you know? Mm. And I know you were quoted um, in your beautiful New York Times profile, which I just love so much, as saying that you knew that you could screw up anything else, but you knew that motherhood was not something you were going to screw up. Right. Where did that confidence for you come from? You know, I just, the day that I had my first child, I made a plan. And her name was Beyonce? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just said my prayers and I, and I said, God, you know, if I screw anything up, please don't let me screw this up. So I really didn't know what I was doing, but I did a lot of reading and, uh, and I just always tried to be really, really true about my kids. You know, tell them the truth, be about the truth, not be fake. Mm-hmm. Just be real, whether it was bad or good, and, and, you know, just make them my first priority. Solange and Beyonce are so vocal about how much you have influenced them. I remember the line from Flawless where Beyonce says, Mama taught me good home training. What is good home training in the Knowles house? Well, to treat people with respect, you know, treat them like you want to be treated, look people in the eye. They learned, they had a lot of rules growing up, and I'm really happy because it worked. And, you know, the, the best thing for me is to hear them saying things that they used to roll their eyes about and be like, oh, God, what is she talking about? They're doing it, you know, and I get to say, look what you're doing. You know, it's funny because it just passes on generation to generation. I think, you know, in the Bible it says, teach your kid and they will not depart from it. And what it means is they might depart for a minute, but they'll always come back. And so they do that and and they're teaching their kids and now they get, their kids are gonna be rolling their eyes at them, which is good poetic justice, right? I love that. They get it back. (laughs) (laughs) Remember all those headaches you gave me? Here here it comes back on. That's right. What's so powerful, too, which I've noticed so much around the work that your daughters are doing publicly is this this calling back to the intergenerational maternal power that's within your family. Um, Even just seeing that image at the VMAs where you Mm. and Beyonce and Blue are just sitting for a portrait that's blasted out to millions of people. And you see these strong, beautiful, talented black women standing there and thinking about all of those images, is that something that you had always been clear about? Are these images that you surround your family with and your children with, was that something that was all there? Because I know Beyonce talks about it at the Grammys in her speech about you being very intentional about ensuring that black art and black images were reflected back to your to your daughters. Absolutely. I think it's really important. Like, it's a lot better now, but when I was growing up, every image that I saw, basically, of someone that was beautiful and successful, they weren't black. Mm -hmm. You know, Julia, which you guys are way too young to remember, but Diane Diane Carroll played a part called Julia, and she was a nurse, and she was beautiful, and she was classy. And let me tell you, I was so obsessed with that, that every time it came on, I was glued to the TV. All of black America was, because that is the first time, really, I saw this beautiful black woman in her environment, in her nice apartment, independent. I'd like to get a look at you. Yes, doctor. What time would be convenient? Be here at nine. And make yourself as handsome as you can manage. I'm tired of looking at ugly nurses. 
I married one. I'll do my best, sir. But has Mr. Colton told you? Tell me what? I'm a Negro. You always been a Negro? You're just trying to be fashionable. <laughs> Nine o'clock. Try and be pretty. So I realized how important it is to surround them with art, with culture, and definitely black culture and black art so that they could feel good about that too. You know, it's really important, especially if your kids attend, um, you know, an all predominantly white school that you take the responsibility as a mother to expose your children to beautiful black images, strong images. And how were you able as a young person to to combat the negative images that were there? What were you thinking at that time? You know, of course, you had access to Julia. You were able to see that. But when all the other things were so oftentimes louder than that, how were you able to like have a sense of self that felt prideful in your blackness? Well, I think that um, I did have somewhat of a warped view. I mean, I have to really be honest. I think back in those times, we really did. We, you know, as a young black woman, I just didn't have that many role models. But I did have a mentor. And I just, you know, as an adult realized that she was a mentor, I didn't know that. But my brother's girlfriend, who drove up in a red Miata convertible with an asymmetrical haircut, and I thought she was the flyest thing ever. <laughs> she sounds like it. Oh my God, her name was Lydia, and I just followed her around like a little puppy. I was just in love. And, and you were how old? Um, I w- the first time I saw her, I think I was 13. And at 14, she took me to see Alvin Ailey oh my God. dancers. And it changed my life because I had never seen such beautiful black people dancing and just being so fabulous and the people that were attending Mm. you know they were dressed because this is like you know in the early 70s and they looked so fly and I just thought they were all rich you know (laughs) because I grew up really poor and it just opened me to a whole new world and it made me want a bigger and better world so I'm doing a mentoring program right now, and I took my girls to see Alvin Ailey last Saturday. And it was amazing to be able to give that to somebody else because their little eyes were this big, you know? And Especially when you're not exposed to, to your people being seen that way. Like you see these black majestic bodies that are exactly. so talented and limber, and you know, it feels like you can take up all, like just the arms, how the arms stretch out and the legs. You feel like, I can take up all the space in the world. I deserve right. all of this. That's true. And, and just them seeing the people that attended, you know, it was exciting for them. And, and then afterwards, you know, Beyonce surprised us and she was in the dressing room <laughs> and that was like the icing on the cake because they were like, we will never forget this day. And then I met with them this past Saturday and we talked about who Alvin Ailey was and they had to research who he was mm-hmm. and who Judith Jameson, who was mm-hmm. the co-founder of it. So I can't tell you how good it made me feel that now they know. And I said, you know, when you're in the company of other people and someone says, Alvin Ailey, you can say, oh, I went to that show and, you know, I met all the dancers Mm -hmm. and they gave me tips and I met Beyonce. Like when you're a little kid and your world is this small, it is, it it opens a whole new world to you. So a couple of them are like, I want to take a dance class. So we're going to make that happen. But that's why mentoring is so, so important. You got to have somebody in your life that creates the dream. I went to another school, high school, because I was going to work with high school girls at first, and I asked 14 girls, what do you want to be? And some of them said, I don't know. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. They'd never even thought about it. Out of the 14 girls, 12 of them had never seen the beach. I mean, that is a small world. I said, what city would you, if, you, if money wasn't a problem, where would you go? And uh, if one said New York, 10 said New York. Mm. Like they couldn't think of anywhere else. Um, this past Saturday, I asked my girls and they said, some of them said Mississippi. And I said, why? And they said, well, because my mama's folks are from there. Mm. And I'm like, by the time you finish this program, you'll be saying Paris or, mm. you know, because you just have to expose them to it. You really do need that person to be the bridge for you, right? Exactly. To, to let you know that, you know, though you're only concentrated on this small piece of the world or this small piece of the pie, and though the society and culture tells you you're only able to reach for crumbs. Exactly. There's so much out there That's what I you. told them. You can do whatever you want to do. And I get really passionate about it because I'm hoping that everybody will start a mentoring program. It can be two girls. Mm. Let's take a break for a sec to get a word from our sponsors. All right, now let's get back to our conversation with Miss Tina. You grew up um, raising children solidly in middle class, and then now you have grandchildren who are completely have access to the entire world almost. Right. What were the lessons that are, or the, the threads that are between the three generations, despite the socioeconomic difference? Well, I think, uh, you know, for me, I grew up very poor. Mm. And so my children's, their youth was spent entirely different. They had access to everything. And uh, not everything, but what, you know, we could afford, which they grew up middle class. They weren't without. Yeah, they weren't without. (laughs) But I think the the common thread is just respecting people, being respectful and not taking for granted what you have and having to work for it. Because my kids weren't just given everything. Mm. You know, they had access to things, but they had to earn it and they had to be good people you know, of all, not some little spoiled brats that think that they're entitled to everything. They had to work for it. And they worked really hard when they were kids. Their job was to go to school, to go to dance lessons, to go to, um, you know, to your voice lessons. And if you want to do this, you got to do the work. Mm. So I think that's the common thread. And, And I see my children passing that on to their children that you got to treat people right and you got to be a good person first the rest of it is fine but that's really important look people in the eye respect people and you know not be a little brat so one of my favorite things that i've ever heard from you is the tina taught me interlude on a seat at the table i think part of it is accepting that is so much beauty and being black And that's the thing that I guess I get emotional about because I've always known that. I've always been proud to be black. Never wanted to be nothing else. Loved everything about it. Just, it's such beauty in in black people. And it really saddens me when we're not allowed to express that pride in being black. And that if you do, then it's considered anti-white. No, you just pro-black and that's okay. The two don't go together because you celebrate black culture does not mean that you don't like white culture or that you're putting it down. It's just taking pride in it. But what's irritating is when somebody says, you know, they're racist, that's reverse racism, or 
they have a Black History Month, but we don't have a White History Month. Well, all we've ever been taught is white history. So why are you mad at that? Why does that make you angry? That is to suppress me and to make me not be proud. What was that process like? Because I felt as a listener, I felt like I was like just eavesdropping on you and Solange. And then like she like secretly recorded you and you didn't know. (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny because she asked me, could I come to Louisiana? And uh, she said, I asked my dad too because she wanted to prepare me for that. And she said, I just want y'all to talk about, you know, your childhood and, and, you know, all of the racial things that you guys always wanted to talk to us about and we never wanted to hear. So, you know, because we tell them about, you know, the trials and tribulations and the things that we had gone through when they were younger. And you don't want to hear that. It's like my kids. It's funny. You can look around and see all this African-American art and there's sharecropping and, you know, the shotgun houses. And um, and and they were like, you know, mom, we we just don't want to have art that's about slavery. Just get over it. Like, you know, growing up, that was kind of like the joke. But I always wanted them to to notice their history. So anyway, Solange asked us to come up, but we really didn't know that it was had anything to do with her record. We thought that she was asking us things to inspire her about the artwork or whatever she was doing. She really didn't give us a lot of information. And she just put me and her dad in a room and we just talked. And those were the things she picked out because we talked probably for an hour about our childhood. So she was very smart in how she did it, because I don't think that I would have been that at ease. I would have been mm. nervous if I would have known I was trying to do something, probably couldn't think of anything. But um, it's funny because one of my really good friends and I had just had a conversation, and she's Jewish, and we were talking about all the things that Jewish people had gone through, Like, which is we always talk about how we relate mm-hmm. the two, because we both had a very rich history of slavery, basically. Oppression. Yeah, mm-hmm. and oppression. And she was just, we were talking about whether um, having like a Black History Month was something that set us apart. Like she had said, do you think that because no other ethnicity has like a, a Chinese History Month or a Jewish History Month? And, and I had said to her, well, every day is that because we learned about white history, I don't ever remember in school there being any emphasis or any lessons on black history. Mm-hmm. So every day is in school is a history lesson for the other cultures, but we don't hear about it. So that's the only way there's a focus and there's attention on, on our history. I know. I just loved how you have this very simple statement of saying that just because I'm pro-black doesn't mean that I'm anti-anything else. Exactly. That it, just because I create the space to celebrate my blackness in this world, in a world that ne- necessarily doesn't even want me to exist or to celebrate that, is nothing is wrong with centering right. myself in that way. And it, it made me even more conscious about my own sense of blackness and being unapologetic in its own celebration. So I thank you for that. Mm-hmm. And I think it did the same thing for so many other people, because oftentimes we're so afraid to to say that because we're like we don't want to offend anyone exactly I mean when I said that I love everything about being black it's the truth I I love the culture I like the way we dress I love the way we use colors I love everything about it but I love other cultures as well Mm -hmm. you know it's it it doesn't take anything away for me to be it's kind of like you know when you give somebody a compliment and you celebrate them it's okay to celebrate yourself too you know it's not 
it's not taking anything away from the other person. So that's, that's, it was great. And speaking of all of the things we love about black folk, we got to talk about hair because you're a hair expert. (laughs) You're a business owner in the hair business, something Mm -hmm. that has given a lot of black women economic power, right? Right. Being able to own a salon, creating a community space as well. It's not just about beauty, but you're there for that. What were the conversations you had raising your children um, about black hair? Well, you know, my kids wore braids when they were younger and they wore them for several reasons. One was that I thought they were beautiful and, um, and it brought about a sense of pride. And also because it was easy, <laughs> you know, because I didn't have to comb their hair for days. And there was some conversation, you know, conversations about, especially in the South, because uh, I can remember Solange going to her first public school in uh, third grade. I tried public school for one year because they had gone to a Catholic school. And, you know, she went to the school. And when her teacher met me, she was very surprised. She walked by me four times. And then finally she said, are you Miss Knowles? And I said, yes. I said, I, I figured you were the teacher. And she said, oh, I just wasn't expecting someone that, that looked like you. And I said, what do you mean? And she says, oh, well, I just meant, you know, Solange is very ethnic. <laughs> and she really didn't mean any harm. It was just an observation on her part. But I was like, oh, wow. And what it meant was she wore these braids and she wore her little hip hop cross color clothes and her little combat boots. And I think she expected, I don't know what she expected, but it's it's just funny how people can get in their head a certain thing about braids or, you know, dressing in like her little hip hop clothes. Mm-hmm. She kind of stuck out at the school, you know, she was very different. And um, hair is a big thing in the black culture of course you know as someone who grew up with you know people saying stuff like you have good hair and you you right. know that whole differentiating and good hair is actually just healthy hair it yes. doesn't matter what the texture <laughs> is you know that's my saying my kids will always say we know we know good hair is healthy hair uh, because I encountered a lot of that you know people coming in and and kind of stereotyping things or thinking that one is better than the other. No, it's not good. It's not better. It's just hair. It's all hair and it's all, um, you know, it's about it being healthy and beautiful. I remember that moment when Solange decided to do the big chop. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing her on Oprah and it was linked with the Chris Rock documentary, Good Hair. Right. And she was sitting there and she talked about the sense of wanting to just embrace how her hair grew out of her head. Exactly. And what were there conversations around her journey there? Obviously, she was an adult by then. So yeah, she really was an didn't... adult. But the funny thing is, is Solange cut her hair off before. She took the clippers, she cut her hair off, and she took the clippers and cut it so short that it was like a boy. And I think she was 14 at the time. And, you know, she got pregnant young and had a baby. During that time, she had young she had all her hair cut off. And so when she did it the second time, everybody made this big fuss over it, but she had done it before. At 14, I wanted to kill her because <laughs> she didn't ask anybody. She didn't talk to anybody. She just, I just saw her and all of her hair was cut off. And she was like, can you straighten it out, mom? And I was like, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and, um, but I loved it. And she looked so beautiful. In fact, she did a photo shoot with Beyonce and her hair was cut off really short then. And she's like maybe 14. Obviously each child is their own child and they oh, have their own person. Oh, she is definitely her own child. <laughs> 
<laughs> so you have the the rebel in that Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. And then you have, you know, another daughter who is at the pinnacle of her career, rising through the mainstream of popular culture, where there aren't that many images or positive images of black women. Right. And how much of Beyonce's styling and hair and all that stuff, particularly when she goes solo and she has a kind of like the medium grade honey blonde hair, the light brown and how people project images onto her Mm -hmm. choices around her hair. Right. Well, I mean, they grew up in a hair salon and Beyonce wears highlights in her hair like I've always worn highlights since I was a kid. You know, I I had highlights in my afro, so it's just been my thing that I've been doing (laughs) since I was 13 years old. Well, I want to thank you for damaging my hair because all throughout (laughs) my youth, I basically didn't have a front because I wanted that that that, that perfect highlight that you have right now. I remember Beyonce most having it in the independent um, women video. And it was just like just right here. And it was like that flip. And I was like trying to achieve that my entire adolescence. And then you put it in your hair and then you put a perm on it and takes it all out yeah yeah so she's just influenced by old pictures of me you know doing Mm. the highlights and and uh, her very first video was the time that I said okay you can have some highlights but we're gonna put little fake ones in there Mm. and um, and I remember the uh, she tells a story about the the hairstylist because the first video I wasn't their hairstylist I I um, I was their hairstylist, but I had someone else that was assisting me and they were supposed to get highlights, the little blonde highlights. Mm. That's what it was. And so they came and they didn't have them. And she was really, really upset with me and it was time to start. So I had highlights in my hair and I cut them out and put them in her hair. I glued them in her hair. Oh my God. Yeah. So she tells that story and she gets choked up about it because, you know, it was so sweet to her. But to me, it was I didn't keep my promise, you know? Mm. So it's really important as a parent, if I had to give any word of advice, is to keep your word. So that was one time that she thought it was very unselfish, but it was really kind of selfish because I was like, it's just hair and it'll grow back, but she is never going to let me live this (laughs) down because she is acting like this is the end of the world because she doesn't have her highlights. Um, But anyway, yeah, so hair has been a, it's a very important thing to us as black people. Mm You know, that's why we like extensions and all of that, because we like to be different. But it's just hair. It's like it's not that deep. And it doesn't identify who you are. Mm. And hair color is just an expression of something different that you want to have or something creative. I don't take it as, oh, you know, I've, I've read some things where people are like, oh, Beyonce wants to be white because she has blonde highlights in her head. But it's ridiculous. She's a very proud black woman, and it's just a cosmetic thing. It's like makeup. Hair color is like, like makeup. And if you look better in something, then you should look your best and not worry about, ooh, I got to be. I know people with natural hair that are the least black inside, you know? It doesn't matter. It's not a barometer of your blackness. Absolutely The way in which you color or braid or weave your hair. That's right. Um, I like to say that, you know, our hair is freedom hair, meaning that we all have the freedom to do with whatever you want to do. And you can change it, you can cut it off, you can grow it, you can sew some on. It's all your hair. If you bought it, it's yours. You know, that's what I say. (laughs) And it's just fun. And it's it's self-expression. That's what it is. I, you know, it's funny. My best friend, Vernell, always teases me because one time we went into this little store that's like a grocery store. And I had on this T-shirt that said 100 percent black woman. And this guy says to me, what 
are you going with that shirt? You need to go take that shirt off. And she fell on the ground laughing because she just thought it was so funny. And I said, brother, I'm the blackest woman you know. And what I meant by that is it has nothing to do with the outside. It has to do with your heart and how mm. you feel on the inside and what pride you have. Mm. You like, don't let that. the skin color in the eyes don't fool, let it fool you. you. Right, exactly. <laughs> so she still teases me. She'll send me you know, write it up and send it to me from time to time to tease me about it. We can't talk about hair. We can't talk about skin and makeup without getting your tips. What are your number one tips for each? For hair? Conditioner, conditioner, conditioner. You know, it's really important that you condition your hair and that you try not to put as much heat on it as possible. You know, if you can wear it natural for a time and just shampoo it and deep condition it and you know my favorite product is Joyco I don't want to give them a commercial I'm but gonna take some notes Hold it's on. amazing because they actually Joy-Co. ground up human hair and put it in a product so your hair just sucks up that protein and it makes it really strong because most of my clients all had color hair color mm-hmm. and they had still had healthy beautiful hair skin skin always wash your face I can't stress that enough and use a good moisturizer uh, invest in it a good moisturizer from very young and stay out of the sun. I know that's hard because it's so fun (laughs) being in the sun. And I was a sun worshiper when I was younger, but my sister is 90 and her skin is beautiful. She never went in the sun and I lived in the sun. So her skin looks better than mine. Mm. And number one makeup, what, what can't you not leave the house without having on? Is it that red lip? Even if I don't have any makeup on, if I put some red lipstick on, I feel like I'm done, you know? <laughs> My kids are so sick of red lipstick. They're like, Mama, we've been looking at red lipstick for 50-something years, and I'm like, you're going to be looking at it the next 20 <laughs> because, you know, it's something about it that just makes your face alive. Mm. Even, you know, I had to go put some on for this interview, even though it's, it's, it's not. It's just audio. But we have to take a photo. Audio, we have to take a selfie but in I the feel good light. Good, I feel better having it on. <laughs> You know, it was so interesting because, you know, I'm kind of like not really saying it, but I am the biggest Beyonce fan that there Aww. is, like <laughs> completely like just, you know, the first book that I wrote in my memoir, I wrote it like a chapter about Destiny's Child really? because Aww. they were so, it's oh God, I'm getting emotional because seeing them, like really seeing them, just it, I grew up a black you know, little transgender girl in Honolulu, Hawaii with no images of myself and seeing those four girls on that stage, take that stage and embody not just their blackness, but being young and fun and also singing like messages of feminism and independence. Mm -hmm. They didn't call it feminism, but like they were like, if you're going to jack up my phone bill, you need to pay it. Like, you know, these things that made me feel so empowered and through the years seeing, you know, Solange and Beyonce and Kelly's and Michelle, seeing their progression as women growing yes. up with them, growing up alongside them as a fan, I have heard you come out more and more, your voice, your presence. What has that been like for you to take this stage in this part of your life and to say, oh, it's mama's turn? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because that was always my plan. Like, I tried to stay as in the background as I could with the girls and just be there for them always. And I'm still there for them. But I decided that at 59 years old, it's my time. And that's not to be in the limelight, so to speak, but just that I have a voice. I had no idea that through the years, people were watching me too. 
You know, mm-hmm. I just thought I was kind of like in the background and invisible, and I just didn't think I had much of a presence. Oh, no, we saw you. Yeah, well, that's what I found <laughs> out. And then when, you know, women started coming up to me saying, you know, you should write a book because I want to know what you did. And, you know, I've been watching you. And I'm like, you've been watching me? You know, I was really surprised about it. And my husband now, he's all about, Tina, you can empower women. You can inspire women. You don't understand the women that tell me how inspired they are by you. So he's helped me a lot because I, believe it or not, am a little shy. I'm a lot better now, but I mean, I used to get on a mic and my voice would shake so bad. I'd be like this. I look at myself on MTV stuff and I'm like <laughs> talking like this and my voice is shaking. And um, now I don't have that fear. And I realize that I can help people, especially older women. Because, um, you know, when I decided at 58 years old that I had to file for a divorce, I was devastated. I was so scared and I was so felt like my life not was over because I knew I had my children, I had my church, I had all the good things that that I had in my life. But as far as, you know, meeting somebody else again, mm-hmm. I just was like, where am I going to meet somebody at my age? Like, you know, I don't, it's not like I have this big social life. My life is my kids and my job and my church. And um, I just thought that part of my life was over. So now I just want to share that that part of your life doesn't have to be over. Mm. So I'm that example for people, and I love it. I mean, it, nothing makes me happier than for a woman to come up to me and say, girl, you know, I started exercising, and I lost weight, and I got a new man. And I get chills thinking about it. It's, it's, it's my purpose. I feel like I found my purpose. You're watching you through the years as, you know, a young person, and then seeing you when you step forward, on that ebony cover in 2015, whew, I was like, where has, where has Miss Tina been? Like, what is going on? <laughs> and that took a lot because they called me and asked me, and I was like, oh, no, I could never do that. The red dress, the crown on the head. <laughs> I was like, what is, what, why is she coming here and doing this? But then we realized it made sense. It was like, that's how you raise daughters like this. It's like this woman exists, exists and she's stepping forward with her own narrative. Right. Yeah, well, that's what it was for me. And just to tell my story, you know, this girl in Texas really was instrumental in the whole thing, too, because she's always admired me. I didn't know her. And she has her own organization where she helps mentor girls and and boys, too. And she had been asking me for three years, please come and let us honor you. And I'm like, I can't do that. I really am not going to be able to talk. Like, if you want to give me the honor and I can just go get it and not say anything. She's like, no, Miss Tina, you have to talk. So finally, she cornered me and she said, you got to do it this year. So I said, okay. So I had ironically just moved in this house with Richard and I said, I'm just going to go up and say thank you. And he said, no, you really need to tell your story. Mm. And I'm so private. I mean, guess, I mean, guess where my kids get it from. Um, And so he, you know, started telling me that I had a story to tell and he got me all psyched up. So I went down there and I wrote a speech and and right before I went out, my minister came. She took my speech and threw it away and she was like, just go talk from your heart. Mm. And I did and I did it and I couldn't believe I did it because little voices in my head were saying, God, they got a bishop here. They got a doctor here. What are you doing here? You know, what do you have to talk about? What is 
uh, so special about you. All those little negative voices get in your head. And when I got up there, the first table I looked at were the ladies, that other ladies that they were honoring. And I'm like, oh, my God. And then I remembered Richard saying, don't focus on the people mm-hmm. that are looking at you crazy. Focus on the people that are looking at you with love. You can find two in the audience. Just talk to them. And I did, and it was great, and it was a big milestone for me. So all my nervousness on TV and everything is gone now. And now, you know, I get on my Instagram, and my kids are terrified all the time because they're like, Mama, you're going to screw up something, and you're going to be so sad. But the truth is, is I say all the time, I'm 63, and I'm on Instagram, and I'm going to screw up. Your Instagram is literally my favorite Instagram. Oh, thank I am you. not kidding. It brings me so much joy, especially <laughs> with this, with what we're going through in our yeah. country with the political landscape right. and, you know, the violence that's happening and the systems of oppression and all these things. It's nice sometimes to just see... A woman on her balcony telling a joke. Right. A <laughs> corny one. A corny <laughs> joke. So did you think of a corny joke that you could share with us exclusively? Yes. Let me see. Um, what is a can in Africa? What is, oh, what, is an, what is a can called in Africa? I don't know. An African. I know. <laughs> Wait, so how do, where did you, was this your, did your father do this? Like who did, who did you get the sense of humor My brother from? did. Okay. And you know, my brother passed away last year and mm. he was my heart. And he used to tell the corniest jokes. Every time you saw him, he had a corny joke and I loved it. It made me so happy. So I was like, one day I said, as a tribute to Skip, I told mm. the, the joke that he told and everybody just responded to it. And I just thought, what a better way for you in all the craziness that's going on to look at some really corny joke. You know, it's just fun. It's too fun. <laughs> I love it so much. Oh, I love you. I just want to thank you so much, Miss Tina, for sharing yourself with us and with the world and for making us laugh and Aww. making us think and making us feel. Um, I don't know if you'll ever know the impact that you've had on millions of people's lives, including mine. Um, So I just really want to thank you for taking this time and being with us. Well, thank you for having me. This was fun. Over the next 10 weeks, I'm talking to some pretty amazing people. So I'm enlisting my executive producer, Lena Dunham, to give you a little hint about next week's guest. Lena, tell the people who's up next. She's magical. There's no one like her. She's taken on the world. Can you even believe that there's a pixie with thoughts like that? That's next week on Never Before. Never Before is a product of Pineapple Street Media and Lenny Letter. It was produced by Jenna Weiss-Berman, Ricky Novetsky, Josh Gwynn, and Liz Watson. Our executive producer is Lena Dunham. Special thanks to Max Linsky and Ben Cooley. Our music is by Hans Del Sue. If you got your entire life by listening to Miss Tina Knowles, then you need to go to iTunes and subscribe and rate us. Now, go do it. It's super important. We want more people to hear Miss Tina. See you next Tuesday. Actually, that really works, though, because it is every Tuesday. <laughs>